And welcome to the start of our most sacred time of the year, the celebration of Holy Week. And today we start out with a celebration, with Palm Sunday. It begins a journey that leads us through despair and darkness into the light of Easter morning and its new beginning. In a way, Holy Week is a sort of highly condensed version of our annual coming together as church. We have celebrations, we have times of reflection, we have times of sorrow, we have times of glory, and all culminating in a magnificently surprising resurrection. Now this year we've identified kind of an organizing theme around Holy Week, and it's one of gratitude. Coming out of two years of isolation, of having church from home, and a frightening pandemic on top of that, we reflect on the ways we're grateful to be back together, to greet each other, to pass the peace, to take communion from the common cup, and so, so much more. Now today we just heard Luke's version of Christ's passion. And much like with the Christmas story, we tend to blend parts of each gospel's passion into one messy whole, taking a bit of this and a bit of that. Now we know they all follow the same progression, but each has its own peculiarities, things that uniquely fit that particular evangelist's point of view. And I find Luke's is one of the more unique tellings of Christ's passion. There are, there are specific features or details that surprise and point us in a direction if we pay attention. Only Luke has an angel appearing, although it's there to provide only comfort, not to answer Jesus' request. Luke has a thing for angels when you think about it, with Zechariah and Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, and eventually Mary Magdalene. Plus, of course, Jesus. All of them interact with the angels. And it's as though in Luke's world, the line between our reality and the heavenly one is maybe a little more porous, allowing them to blend into each other when necessary to achieve God's aims. Now, in this angel, Luke seems to be saying that, quote, God's presence is real, but it does not eliminate the struggle that Jesus must endure. Now, this is a lesson for all of us centuries later. As we ponder and wonder why our prayers don't go answered, or maybe answered in a different way than we expect. And there are more special features to Luke's passion. It's the only one where Herod Antipas makes an appearance, although Jesus stays silent before him. In this one, Judas moves to kiss Jesus as his singular act of betrayal, but Jesus resists him. Judas, is it with a kiss that you're betraying the Son of Man? The kiss is avoided. Jesus remains in control of the situation. Peter denies Jesus three times, as in the other Gospels. But as the cock crows were told, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembers Jesus' prophecy that he'll deny him those three times before the cock crows. And I imagine how painful that look must have been for Peter. Only in Luke are we told that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. So overcome is he by grief, the harrowing look from the face, from the look on Jesus' face. In fact, emotions are elevated throughout Luke's telling. Jesus prays and sweats like great drops of blood fall around him, despite the angels' ministrations. 
The disciples are found sleeping, not out of laziness, but out of grief. Already they lament Jesus' future and their own. The high priest's slave loses an ear to the sword, and we're not told who the instigator is. And Jesus calls it to a halt. Then he heals the slave's ear. Luke, we're told, is a doctor by trade, and his emphasis on Jesus' healing powers is a recurring theme throughout the gospel. Only in his telling do we have this moment of healing of the weakest one in the mix. Only in Luke's telling do we have the scene of redemption at the end with the repentant criminal. He rebukes the first criminal for his cynicism. Instead, he asks Jesus for forgiveness. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, he asks. In his passion, Luke's overreaching project seems to be the continuity of Jesus' ministry of healing and redemption through to the very end. Healing and redemption. His last three statements are all other-directed, not about himself, despite his difficult circumstance. Father, forgive them, for they they do not know what they are doing. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. His last three statements. In his final moment of great, great pain and isolation and rejection, Luke's Jesus is concerned about the other people, about those who deny him, or those who mourn for him, the daughters of Jerusalem, about the criminal, about his heavenly Father. In the other Gospels, he cries out memorably, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But not in Luke. Jesus' pain is no less. Remember, he sweats like great drops of blood in his anguished prayer. But Jesus remains focused on his ministry throughout, on others. And for this, we're told he's proclaimed innocent. Pilate actually tells us three times about his innocence, despite the people's cries, our cries you just heard, to the contrary. The centurion, in his final closing take, his final message, praises God and says, certainly this man was innocent. More than any other gospel, Luke emphasizes Jesus' innocence, particularly in the eyes of the powerful Romans involved. Why is innocence so important to Luke? So important that Pilate proclaims it three times, and the centurion closes our story with its assurance. For Luke, I think Jesus' innocence is his source of power in the world here and now. He doesn't create an end-time scenario, what's also known in the fancy words as a parousia, to show his power. At the trial by the Sanhedrin, the trial we just heard at the start, the powerful priests and scribes, they challenge him. If you are the Messiah, tell us. And his response is, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. For Luke, Jesus' innocence lets him sit at the right hand of the power of God. It places him there. It allows him to judge the judges whom he faces in trial. To Pilate, he turns the tables. When Pilate asks if he's indeed the king of the Jews, Jesus responds with a simple retort, you say so. 
the powerful one is robbed of his power. He can do nothing but proclaim Jesus' innocence. I find no basis for an accusation against this man. For the gathering crowds, for the listener of Luke, and for us listening today, we are assured that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus' self-evident innocence makes this happen. It reassures us as we venture this Holy Week from celebration to reflection to sorrow and dejection and back to light. Jesus is always present with us. He's in the look that he gives Peter after his three denials. He's in the assurance to the criminal, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' healing, redemptive ministry is a right here, right now kind of thing. Not just in some future end times, but a force for salvation and justice in this world at this time in history. His concern for us is deep, just as he worries about the daughters of Jerusalem. And as always, he's not concerned about himself. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus' innocence doesn't preclude his deep pain, his self-emptying in the final moments of his crucifixion. Now, unique to Luke, again, is the timing of the tearing of the temple curtain. It doesn't follow Jesus' death, as it does in the other Gospels, but happens just before it. It's three in the afternoon, we're told, and the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Only then does Jesus utter his last words. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And the evangelist tells us, having said this, he breathed his last. Now, as you may know, we've been having a journey through the prayer book here at St. Peter's these last weeks. And we began in Lent with a self-guided practice of putting together our own funeral service. It's been a powerful experience, anticipating our own mortality while thinking about the message, the emotions, and the assurances that you want to leave behind. In one of the Tuesday night deep dives on the scripture, our guide, Marilyn Ryszkowski, memorably had us to use watercolor paints to depict the temple curtain. It separates the inner sanctum from the Holy of Holies in the temple, and it's the most sacred spot in all of creation. It's a microcosm of God's creation, the universe, and, we're in, and we were instructed by Marilyn to paint the top of our sheets in dark blues, the color of the evening sky, and the bottom in reds, reflecting the earth or created order that we stand upon. In the middle of our curtain was a kind of blend of reds and blues, which in the magic world of watercolors yielded a kind of muddy purple or even a reddish like our stoles today. And the bottom of the, and the bottom in the reds reflected that order. And Marilyn did something surprising. She asked us as we finished and looked at our wonderful works she told us to tear them in two. So we were to duplicate what was happening with the temple curtain, to tear them as the temple, as the temple curtain splits. And it was a moment of bracing realness as our hands held our curtains, now torn just 
As moments ago, they had been together as one. Marilyn being Marilyn, she kept our handiwork and presented them to us neatly matted and arrayed on the last Tuesday of her class, this past Tuesday. We stared at our creations now renewed, a unique piece of art, a new thing grown out of the destruction of the past thing. The temple's torn curtain can reflect the removal of the division of God's domain, the Holy of Holies, and the created world where we humans dwell. It's gone. It's erased. In Jesus' life, and especially in his death, the curtain between us and God is erased. Our lives again are sanctified in Jesus' blood, and we become a part of this new creation. And he sits as the Son of Man at the right hand of the power of God. I imagine the kingdom of God pouring through the torn curtain, purifying creation as it invades our space. Angels, as a result, may appear more regularly as they do in the Gospel of Luke. And the ordinary and divine become more seamless. So let's keep our eye out. A new piece of art results. The sacred art of God's handiwork. And here we stand. On the brink of the adventure, the beginning of Holy Week, what a journey lies ahead. And for this, we are grateful. Amen.